So Jesus, we ask that you help us apply those words to our lives uh, so that we can be more like you. We ask this in your name, Lord. Amen. Well, hello, 945. Good to see all of you guys here. Uh, those of you coming in, there's still some seats up front uh, if, you, uh, if you are looking for seats. I uh, want to start with a show of hands. How many of you are loving this election season so far? Wow, that's weird. No one. All right. Uh, how many of you have been at least mildly concerned and or mystified so far? Okay. How many of you are looking at housing listings in Canada? <laughs> Actually, there are some people. Okay. Like, what are we going to do, guys? Like, what? it is crazy this year, right? Like, what are we going to do? How can we find hope in this election season? How can we find hope for ourselves? How can we bring hope to our culture that needs it? We're in a sermon series on the last things that Jesus, the things Jesus chose to do, the last five days of his life, because they show how his radically different priorities lead to a radically counterculture, bigger, richer, deeper life. And one of the things he does is to avoid a political argument. Right? Like that just makes sense. If you have only five days to live, you don't want to waste it arguing politics, right? That's what Thanksgiving with the family is for. Now, last week I, I said that this, I thought this would be one of the more important sermons I give this year. Uh, to be clear, I didn't say it was going to be the best sermon I gave this year. I just want to manage expectations. But important because this is one of the more vitriolic and discouraging elections in my lifetime that I can remember. But whatever your politics is, I think Jesus offers us real hope as the people of God. And I think he shows us how we can be healers in this amazing country that we live in. Jesus here has asked one of the hottest political questions, issues of his day. Text says, the Pharisees sent their disciples along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, is it right to pay the empirical tax to Caesar or not? Very hot button political issue of Jesus' day. On the left, people we would call kind of liberals were the Pharisees who said the occupying Roman government was oppressive and therefore Jews should rebel by not paying the tax. Conservatives, on the other hand, called Herodians, advocating cooperating with the Romans. The only thing they agree on is they don't like Jesus, so they team up together to trap him. Okay, this would be like if Rush Limbaugh and Hillary Clinton worked together on something. And if Jesus says, don't pay the tax, he's going to be arrested as a rebel. If he says, pay them, he's going to be seen as a collaborator with Rome. But as always, Jesus chooses a third way. He asks for a coin, and he says, whose face and inscription is on it? They say Caesar's. And he says, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Now, I suppose you could say that's a response worthy of any politician, since he doesn't actually answer the question. But it actually goes much deeper. What he's trying to get at is it's, it's neither left nor right. It's not rebel, but neither is it except the status quo. It's a different paradigm altogether. Because you see, Jesus never made a political pronouncement on any of the political issues of his day. He never spoke up about any of the political issues of his day. And ever since, his followers have been doing the exact same thing. Oh, not so much, right? And Christianity is highly politicized in our country. And not just the Christian right. There is an increasingly vocal Christian left as well. And in this church, we're kind of evenly split, right? right kind of right down the middle. We're, we're a little like a cheer we used at my high school football games. Lean to the left, lean to the right. That's kind of us. And, and in this sermon, I'm going to try to prevent the stand up, sit down, fight, fight, fight part. 
Now, we all know, we all know that Jesus is neither a Democrat nor Republican. You do all know that, right? Like, nod, let me know that you're with me, okay? My wife says I should freak you all out right now and say, he's a libertarian. (laughs) But I think deep in our hearts, we all kind of think, yeah, but he leans a little more to my side than the other. But Jesus here points to a third way. The Greek verb he uses in this verse is actually very specific. It's not give to Caesar. It's give back to Caesar what is his. It's his coin. He minted it. So let him have his little coin. He's a little man. You can give some of what Caesar wants, but you can't give everything that Caesar wants. You bear the image of a different king. You are stamped with the image of the father. In other words, the government has its place, but it's not ultimate. The only thing worthy of our highest allegiance is God. So give to Caesar only what is his, but don't give him what's not his. Give to God what belongs to God. It is the first example of limited government in history. And Jesus here is advocating for a revolution, just not the way the revolutionaries imagined it. It's called the kingdom of God, which Jesus talked about more than anything else. That's whenever things are being done the way God always intended it to be. Folks getting out of poverty, lonely people finding community, reconciliation between us and God and us and each other. It is a revolution far more radical than any politician's. And Jesus here shows shows us how we can find hope for ourselves in this kind of crazy culture we're in and also be healers in this culture. Three things the people of God reject and one thing we embrace. First, for hope and healing, we reject political simplicity. Jesus here rejects their simplistic, binary, either-or kind of question because the real world is actually complicated. No political ideology represents God's kingdom perfectly. In some places, the Bible sounds to us liberal. In other places, it sounds to us conservative, something to offend everyone. For example, the Bible is crystal clear that that the people of God are called to help the poor. It's in every book of the Bible crystal clear the people of God are called to help the poor. However, I am not sure it's clear in Scripture that that's the government's job to do that. Not saying it is, not saying it isn't, just saying I'm not sure Scripture says the government should be doing that. Now, that might annoy some of you on the left. So, let me irritate some of you on the right. Isn't this fun? (laughs) Having a good time? My email is going to be so full this week. It's going to be awesome. They're all going to, you made me so mad. Good. Um, uh, Let me irritate some of you on the right. I, I am not sure what Scripture says a nation's immigration policy should be, but it is crystal clear it is the church's job to care for the immigrants who are here. And it reminds us that Jesus himself was a refugee in Egypt, and we are called to show hospitality. See, now you're all mad. (laughs) Scripture radically critiques every ideology. When was the last time something in the Bible challenged your politics? When was the last time something in the Bible challenged your politics Because if it's been a long while, that means you're not worshiping the Jesus of Scripture. You're worshiping the Jesus that you made up. Because one sure way to know that you are worshiping a God that you made up is he always votes the same way you do on every single issue. See, the Christian vote in America should be the hardest vote to get. No one party should be guaranteed the Christian vote because we don't vote just one or two pet issues. We let Scripture radically critique every issue. Two weeks ago, I mentioned how I didn't think that my daughters should date until they are 30 because it causes tooth decay. (laughs) This is just a fact. 
right? Well, afterwards, someone sent my wife this. It's, a, it's an application to date my daughter. I thought that was very handy, right? Let, let, let me read you some of the questions on this. Rich is nodding his head. You agree, right? right. Let, me, let me read you some of the questions on this application. This will relate to the sermon, I promise. Okay, here's some questions. Question one, do you drive a van? If yes, discontinue filling out this form. <laughs> Question four, what do you want to be if you grow up? Question five is my favorite. Question five, which bone would you least like to be broken? And then it says there'll be a $50 deposit to date my daughter. If you are one minute late, the deposit is mine. If you are 30 minutes late, please refer to question five. <laughs> very, very handy this, right? Okay, here's the thing. The Christian vote should be harder to get than dating my daughter because we subject every political position to the radical critique of Scripture, which brings me to step two of how we find hope and healing. We reject political demonization. Jesus empowers us to be instruments of grace in a graceless world by showing respect to people even that we disagree with. You don't have to agree, but show respect. One of the classes I taught at Stanford was how to construct a compelling argument. And I would always tell my students that the straw man argument is not to be respected. That's where you deal with the weakest argument of your opponent rather than with their strong arguments. And your opponent almost always has at least one good point, if not more. And until you've dealt with that good point, either by refuting it outright, which is usually hard to do because it's a good point, or nuancing your position to account for the complexity of the issue, if you don't do that, your argument is lame. C minus, at best, if I'm in a good mood. And a lot of what I see on social media these days is the straw man argument. Right? Someone posts some outrageous thing some left-wing city council person in Berkeley said or some, some right-wing mayor in Alabama said, basically saying, see, 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 they're all like this. See how evil, crazy, dangerous, unpatriotic, whatever, right? They all are. Okay, first, thinking folks see straight through your straw man argument, you convince nobody. Second, you may wound a brother and sis or sister in Christ who may sit just a few feet from you in church every Sunday morning Right? Who, who, like you, wants the best for this country, they just think there's a different way to get there than you. Can we dispense, can the people of God dispense with all the political stereotypes? Conservatives are not a bunch of greedy people who hate the poor. Maybe some are, but most care deeply about the poor. In fact, there is data that shows conservatives give more to charities than liberals, not because they're more compassionate, but because they believe the private sector is more effective than that, in that in the government. And liberals are not a bunch of unpatriotic, impractical zealots. Maybe some are, but most love this country deeply and have ideas that they believe, often with good evidence, will work. And if we listen to the opposition, not necessarily to agree, but to add complexity to our position, we would get smarter policies in our country and less toxicity. Because one of the things that's broken right now is that neither the left nor the right, they're both terrified to admit the other side just might have a good idea for fear of looking like they are traitors to the cause. Speak your opinions, but respectfully, and listen to others so that we get smarter policies. This week I read something very, very hopeful. Messianic Jewish leaders, those are Israelis who call Jesus Lord, and Palestinian Christian leaders, they held a summit. Now, those two groups don't get along any better than Israelis and Palestinians in general, but they're both Christian. And here's what they decided from their summit. This is what they said. Even though we are convinced of our own positions, convinced of our own positions, we will listen more carefully to one another to understand. 
And we will not require others to change their position as a condition of our fellowship. They went on to say, some of us think God promised the land to the Jews, but we reject any interpretation of that that denies the peoplehood of the Palestinians and their right to remain in the land of their ancestors. And we lament with them the suffering and injustice caused by that denial. Some of us believe God's promise of the land also extends to Palestinians, but we reject the interpretation of that that denies the right of Jews to a secure homeland. And we lament suffering and violence caused by those who seek to destroy Israel. Our shared faith in Yeshua, that's Jesus, calls us to respect and reconciliation. If they can do that, the people of God surely can do that in this country. Third way to hope and healing, reject political idolatry. The coin Jesus asked for would have contained the inscription on it, Tiberius Caesar, son of God, high priest. In other words, emperor worship. That's idolatry. Jesus here challenges the idolatry on both sides that would say the ultimate solution to our problems is political. Jesus challenges that. Now, politics matter, okay? And we need Christians in politics like we need them everywhere else, but no government is our ultimate hope. Jesus is. And I am so often dismayed at how some Christians ignore a whole host of things in a political party or in a candidate that are clearly not biblical and they do this on both sides simply because that candidate or party is kind of, quote, on our side or, you know, has the opinion that I like on this pet issue. So many Christians bend their faith to fit their politics rather than their politics to fit their faith. That's idolatry. And anything that pits one class against another, one race or religion or group against another, anything that belittles or demeans on either side should be respectfully called out as having no place in the kingdom of God. We do not view Scripture through the lens of our politics. We view politics through the lens of Scripture. And all of Scripture, not just our favorite verse or two, all of Scripture. And no government is our ultimate hope. The early Christians transformed the Roman Empire, not by taking over the Roman Senate or getting their candidate as emperor, but by putting Jews and Gentiles together, racial reconciliation, they cared for the poor and the sick. They refused to practice female infanticide because they valued women. They had courage in the face of martyrdom. The world wanted to know the Jesus behind all that, and the faith grew 40% per decade. And then gradually, fewer and fewer people went to the gladiator games because they were Christian. And hospitals started, and, and relief for the poor. And that kept going for 300 years, but then disaster struck. A tragedy, a terrible thing happened to the Christian movement. The emperor became Christian. And everyone at first was like, yay, he's on our side. But what happened then was now it was an advantage to be a Christian. So folks who were half-hearted about it at best became Christians so they could get that cushy government job, and the faith got watered down, and then Christians, led by the emperor, started fighting over theology, and the movement died because they relied on politics rather than on Jesus to change the world. That's idolatry. Same thing happened after the fall of Rome. Christians went all over Europe, lived the radically different Jesus way of life, and gradually Celtic and Germanic tribes one by one became Christian, and they got a little revival going until Charlemagne decided that the best way to convert someone was at the point of the sword. It seemed to be working so well for the Muslim empire to his south, why not for Christians too? And the courageous faith of the martyrs became a fearful and persecuting church. Christianity always thrives best when it's not in power. And paradoxically, we have more influence on the culture when we're not in power. 
and work from the margins, probably because we serve a crucified God who leads from the margins. In fact, I've always thought, you know, if a government wants to stamp out Christianity, they shouldn't persecute Christians. That just makes more Christians, right? If you really want to kill Christianity, state sponsor it. Like, works every time. Reject political simplicity, demonization, and idolatry. And then lastly, this. This is what we embrace. We draw hope from our king and his upside-down kingdom. See, Jesus here doesn't say, I'm a better Caesar, put me in power. He says, oh, I'm a different kind of thing altogether. See, every leader says, I'm for the people, but what always happens is they end up being for the people who agree with them on what they think the people need. All revolutions are just rearranging the furniture, guys. But Jesus proclaims the radical, upside-down kingdom of God, and he says, the pinnacle of my career is not when I get elected, it's when I get executed. And I'm going to give power, success, and recognition away so that I can liberate all those who are oppressed emotionally, economically, physically, spiritually. And when you start to follow me, and the more you experience my love, the less you feel the need for power, success, and recognition. If you have them, that's fine, but you don't need them. And instead, you find joy in helping others and bringing my kingdom. And for those of you who think this doesn't work, like in the real world, in real life, like this doesn't make any difference in the real life, it's just spiritual stuff, let me ask you this. Who was Caesar after Tiberius? For that matter, how many of us could name all the 19th century presidents of this country? I mean, you know, we might get Adams, Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe, but most of us would bog down somewhere around Millard Fillmore, as did the entire country. <laughs> and Taylor and Tyler, man, that would just really screw us up. Which came first? Was it Zachary Taylor? I don't know. But important, man, important in their day. Now they're forgotten. But we all know the name of the Jewish carpenter, don't we? And his kingdom isn't just up there. It makes real-world changes right down here. South Africa and Rwanda, nations torn apart by racism and violence, being mended in large part through Christians doing truth and reconciliation seminars where victims and perpetrators came together and got told hard truths but found healing together in Jesus. Apartheid itself was brought down largely through the moral influence of Bishop Tutu and Nelson Mandela. Jubilee Reach, which this church started, is breaking cycles of poverty. Is that a political issue? Oh, you bet it is. And when kids get involved in those after-school programs, their grades, their test scores go up. They get out of the gangs, all of which enables them to get an education, which is a road out of poverty. More important, they find spiritual and emotional wholeness in the process. This isn't me saying this, guys. This is a school district saying this. And what does it is a caring adult enters their lives and loves them and models the life of integrity. And this is the church's specialty because it's all about relationship. This is what the church can do, right? And as more Christians do that, then gradually our culture begins to change just like it did in the Roman Empire. See, politics does not lead culture, especially in a democracy. Politics just responds to culture. Someone sent me a story about a pastor who came in one Sunday very distracted because he just discovered the church roof was broken and he needed thousands of dollars to fix it. So he got really annoyed when he discovered that they had a substitute organist that day. So he gave the organist a, co a copy of the service and he said, look, you're just going to have to figure out on your own what to play after I make the finance announcement. So then he told the congregation, look, we need $4,000 to fix the roof. Anyone who can give to this, please stand up at which point the organist played the Star-Spangled Banner. <laughs> and that's how the substitute organist became the permanent one. <laughs> what does that story have to do with this sermon? Almost nothing. 
But it does show that faith and politics can be a strange combo, and we got to make sure that our politics responds to our faith, not the other way around. I love this country. I love this country. But I love Jesus more. And I am a citizen of his kingdom first. An elder in our church told me about his niece named Bobby, who's married with a family of her own. But 35 years ago, she found herself young, single, and pregnant. And, and, and she decided to have the baby, and her family was supportive, and then she gave the baby up for adoption, all of which gave her a heart for women in similar situations. But, as, but she observed that things like picketing abortion clinics and things like that weren't really helping at all because she kept hearing the stories of these women, the, their needs. They were young, they were single, often without resources, sometimes addicted, often without family support. And she wanted to pass on the blessings that she had received. So she and some other Christian women raised a ton of money and started a home that provides social services, medical care, emotional and spiritual care for these women. And it's so successful that the city and the county have been given money to it because they discovered that medical care for the babies is cheaper if they get prenatal care. But in spite of all that government money, they still have maintained their Christian identity, praying with the women, sharing Christ with the women. And Bobby has volunteered there for the last 35 years. And our elder asked her, do you just do this out of a sense of duty? And she said, you know, over the years, volunteers have come and gone, probably out of duty. But she has served faithfully because her difficulties gave her compassion for, the, for women in the same situation. And so now women who want this option can experience God's love, but also get help with their real practical needs. And our elder said it's really clear to him that it gives a ton of joy to Bobby and meaning to her life because she's making a difference. Now, regardless of where you are on that issue, that's hope, Right? It's a, it's a political issue getting addressed by the people of God by means of the kingdom of God. And for Bobby herself, right, this gives her way more joy than politics. So yes, absolutely, this year, vote your Christian conscience as best you can, but know that no one ideology completely captures the kingdom of God. And advocate for your perspective, but be respectful in conversations and in social media. And then, and most important, the people of God, take hope in this. This is our hope. The most radical, rebellious, revolutionary statement in any culture at any time in any place are these three words. Jesus is Lord. Say that with me. Jesus is Lord. You bunch of radicals. <laughs> like there is no more revolutionary statement than that because it says that Jesus is Lord, which means that Caesar or any modern incarnation of Caesar is not Lord. And Jesus is not up there in heaven right now, wringing his hands, going, oh, I've held the universe together for eons, but this election in America has got me stumped. That's not happening. He is still king of kings and lord of lords. And he loves this country like he loves every country in spite of our flaws. Oh, beautiful, for heroes proved in liberating strife, who more than self their country loved, and mercy more than life. America, America, may God thy gold refine. See, God does it. Till all success is nobleness and every gain divine. 
Guys, every empire eventually crumbles. Roman Empire, gone. Kingdoms of the Middle Ages, gone. Just like one day the Democratic and Republican parties, and yes, though may it be a long time away, even the United States will be gone because the powers that be always become the powers that have been. But Jesus and his kingdom will go on and on, and he will not just rule for one election cycle, but he will rule forever and ever and ever. And that's the movement I want to be a part of because that's the one that's going to prevail. That's the one that's going to win. That's the one that's going to last. See, my hope is not in this candidate or that candidate. My hope is not in this party or that party. My hope is not in this election or that election. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought, storm, and election. No power in hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I stand. Here is the good news, guys. The Republicans aren't Lord. The Democrats aren't Lord. The Congress isn't Lord. The President isn't Lord. Jesus is Lord. And that hope, that hope can never be taken away. So Jesus, whatever we face in you and you alone, our hope is found. Make us people of hope. Make us people of light. Make us people who bring hope to a culture that is tearing itself apart. Lord, may we be agents of your reconciliation, truth, goodness, and justice. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.